I am excited to be here. I hope you are as well. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we'll cover a little bit of chapter 1. I even brought some notes today. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I might even look at them. Um, usually when I have notes, it's because I, I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes, and it's to remind me that I got other stuff I'm trying to get to. So uh, there's a bunch today. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, each and every soul here, Father. Thank you for each and every just body, mind, spirit complex that you've created, that you've brought to this time and this place and this space, Lord, to do work, to experience you, to, to know you, to learn about you, Father. And Lord, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you fire up our spirits, Father. Ignite us with your word today. Show us what it is that you made when you made us. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot, of, uh, a lot of preachers start with um, jokes or anecdotes, and somebody once asked me why I don't, and it's because um, <clears throat> my humor tends a little bit towards the dark side, and dark humor is kind of like food. Not everyone gets it, so it's, um, that's why I don't do jokes at the beginning. So let's, uh, but we've got, today we're talking about the creation of man and woman. And the question I want to ask that I've been working on for weeks and weeks and weeks as I, as I look towards this, this space is what did God make when he made us? What did he make? What are we actually? And there's a lot of, a lot of answers to that. Well, we're, we're in the image of God. What does that mean? What did he make us out of? We're made out of dust. What does that mean? What is it? So, those are the kinds of questions we're going to be asking. First, let's go to the text because Genesis itself is, uh, is it's, it's a tough way of navigating the creation of man because it tells the story twice, and they're not exactly the same. And that's not necessarily a contradiction. They're just different. Uh, so if you're here and you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the end of Genesis chapter 1, starting in around verse 28, uh, actually about 26. And if you're online, do follow along. We're going to be hitting a lot of scripture today, so have your Bible with us. And if you're watching this in the future, we're glad you're here. And uh, have your Bible open as well. So Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. So normally I would read the whole passage, but what I want to do is I'm just going to walk through it with some commentary this morning. You know, typically I, I start by opening up and reading the whole thing, but there's just a lot to cover. So I'm going to go quickly through this text because we do go verse by verse, section by section. And the second half of chapter one and most of chapter two is all about the creation of man and woman. So starting in Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us make man in our image. There's two things there. Make. The word make is a word, it's not the same as the word uh, create. Create is bara. It's a Hebrew word that is always and only unto deity, to create, that only God creates. But lots of people can make. It means to craft or to, to, to artisanally build something. And then he has that, and you, if you haven't uh, heard my uh, last sermon in Genesis just the week before Easter, it'll be helpful context for this. It says, let us make man in our image. Uh, you know that that's a very loaded term if you've been coming for a handful of weeks. It's a very loaded term after our likeness. And a lot of times people say that, well, that, that's just God speaking in the royal we. And I disagree because he doesn't do that other places in scripture. Or that's just God speaking in the Trinity. And I disagree because that's not how he speaks of the Trinity in scripture. He's talking to his heavenly council, his high council of high beings that he's created, that Jesus says we will be lifted up alongside someday in the resurrection. So there's a, there's a lot to that. If that is making your head spin, then go back and pull up that uh, last sermon. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. So he went from our image to his own image. We went from make to create. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to pause here for a moment because it's important to recognize that male and female is ordained in creation. 
Remember how uh, when uh, uh, our brother Brian talked about creation, he talked about God bringing things from disorder to order, ordering the universe. Male and female is part of the very creation of how God ordered the universe. And we're going to see later that he continues to order the universe into the marriage of man and woman and one man and one woman. And the enemy wants to tear down the order that our creator ordered in the universe. And that's why all of the things that we're seeing in this creation epic are being systematically dismantled by the world. First, who created? Second, how created? Second, how long created? When created? What created? Male and female dismantled. Family dismantled. It's all being systematically torn down because the enemy doesn't want God's order in the universe. And to walk in the spirit, to walk as a, a child of God, is to run in direct contrast to what the enemy wants. The enemy wants to pull you away, and you can't dance with both. Jesus says you can't be friends with the world and also serve God. It doesn't work that way. You can love the world, Jesus loved the world, but you can't be loyal to the world and serve the world and also serve God. So you're going to find yourself, if you're gonna be serious about scripture, you're absolutely going to find yourself at odds with the world. And I love the term that Brian used when he preached, and, and he and I have used this term in our own conversations, it's the, the priesthood of science. I'm not anti-science. I like discovery. God puts us in dominion over the world. He says to rule it, to create it, to subject it. And part of the, the job of science is to, to subject the world to our needs. It doesn't mean to abuse the world, but to subject the world to, what, to us. That's what science does. We teach, we, we learn things. We learn how to use nature for our benefit. We learn how to, how to nurture the world. But the priesthood of science says, no, no, no God, science only, our narrative, and we will defend it at all costs, and we will primarily use it to shrink God and to get rid of this order that he has originally established, and we reject that. And God blessed the man and the woman and said to them, I'm in verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. Some people say that's the first command. I don't think of it as a command. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to ble where he blesses them. and says, be fruitful, have dominion. Now this, by the way, is very, very different than most ancient creation accounts because what this says is man is over nature. And if you look at most ancient, and I'm going to reference some things uh, this week because it, it's well worth the exercise of going and digging up every ancient creation myth or epic you can find. And I hesitate to keep calling them myths because they all say the same thing. And I've, I've been reading the, uh, the Toltec, the Mayan, the, the Polynesian, the Native American, the, the, uh, the Indian, and the, uh, the Nordic. All these accounts have very, very distinct common elements. Now, I'm not saying they're all inspired by God. They're not. But they're all ultimately telling the story of where man came from and what God did. But our scripture which is inspired by God, has a few distinctive things to it. And one of them is that man is over nature. Compare that to the uh, enemy God that you see in Scripture so often, Baal, and there's a lot of variations of Baal. These, these pagan gods were nature-dominating man. Baal was the storm god or the rain god. And we see that, we'll see later that rain is a gift from God to man, and they put rain as a god over man. See, they reversed it. And that's what paganism does, and that's what the world does. It says, you have to serve nature. And that's a narrative we're hearing today, isn't it? You have to serve nature. You're responsible not just for subjecting nature in a responsible way and caring for nature in a responsible way and working the earth in a meaningful way and tending the earth, but you have to serve it. You have to bow down to it. It has to master you. That narrative hasn't gone away. Let's go to uh, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made... And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Dan covered the next section about uh, God resting, and I, we very intentionally had an entire sermon just on that section because that, that portion is really important. Look at what God did when he established the Sabbath. He created a temple in time. If you look at the other creation epics, the other creation narratives, 
then you have these gods, and they create a temple in space, meaning they literally create a temple on the earth and say, we built this temple to honor ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. God says, no, I'm going to give you a time. He's higher than these others. He's not limited like they are. He can set aside time as a holy place to meet him. It's really interesting to think about. Let's go to verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. They were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is very important to me. My name is Joel. Some people call me Joel, but my name is actually Joel. It means Yahweh Elohim or Jehovah Elohim. So when you look at your Bible in verse 4, when it says the Lord God, that is Yahweh Elohim. That's my name. It means the Lord is God, and Yahweh is the M that I am, the tetragrammaton, that I am who I am is God. And you can spend, a, and I've spent a tremendous amount of time recently just meditating on that because the great I am is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger through Scripture, and we're going to talk about that when we talk about what God made. But this, this uh, juxtaposition of God's name of Yahweh Elohim is only used one place in Scripture, and it's here. It's here in the creation account of man, this uh, chapter 2 and going into chapter 3, and it's used 20 times. It's also briefly used one other time in Exodus 9.30 when Moses is calling out Pharaoh. It's the only time you see Yahweh Elohim. Everywhere else you see Lord God, you'll see God capitalized in your Bible, and that means uh, Yahweh Adonai. And that was a juxtaposition of mercy and justice in the name of God. But Yahweh Elohim is here, and that's my name, Joel. So I like that verse. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. See, rain comes after man because it's a gift to man. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Interesting stuff. We're not going to get too distracted by it. You can ask Brian about it. I'm sure he'll have all sorts of things to say about what that means and why. But the... Um, the, the, the point there is this is, not a, uh, this is not a contradiction that God made plants and then made man. It's just talking about a specific kinds of plants. The plants that needed the tending and needed the tilling, he's made separately after man. Not a big deal. We'll also see what he makes Eden. He makes Eden distinctly and puts different trees in Eden than he puts in the rest of the world. So this, this account, the more you look at it, the more it's just a detailed explanation of what happened in chapter 1. It's also important in chapter uh, 2, the whole tone in chapter 2 changes. The name of God changes. The, whole, the, the, the way the phrasing is structured changes. So it goes from a, a, uh, an historical documentary to a narrative. And that's kind of what, what the shift is between chapters 1 and 2, and that's why there's a chapter break there. Verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed, that's that artisanal word, the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So much in there, so much in there. Dust formed of the ground. Do you know every creation account says man was, every creation account for the large part that I've been able to find says man was formed of the ground. Now they just, they just uh, disagree sometimes on who formed man it says, man was formed of the ground. What some deity made man out of dirt, dust. What is dust? We'll come back to that. So he, God makes man, and then he says, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, breath often is a nefesh, spirit. This is a, a very special word. It's a, a higher version of that. And what it means is the soul of life. It's a deeper, more powerful word, and this is not the same thing that God breathed when he made animals. Man is distinct. This is part of being in the image of God. There's a soul component to this. And the Lord God, there's that Yahweh Elohim again, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also. Don't forget there's two major trees here. 
It's not just one. There's the knowledge of good and evil and also the tree of life. One of those shows back up in Revelation, and one of those Jesus promises the right to eat from later. A river flowed out of Eden, and this next several verses, the whole point of it is it just shows you this is a real place with real geography, with real rivers, some of whom still exist today. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. A lot of people are trying to figure out exactly where that is. Uh, Bedillium and onyx stone are there. By the way, when you see scripture list like precious gemstones and stuff, it's our best guess. Sometimes it's very hard to know precisely what gemstone they were talking about. It's just our best guess. Obviously, we know the word for gold and silver and stuff, but when it comes to like bedillium and onyx and jasper and all these, we don't know for sure. Uh, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Cush is the Ethiopian region. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Having something to do is a gift from God. The fall has not happened yet. We're not all supposed to be idle and lounging around having somebody fan us and feed us grapes. That's just not really in Scripture. He gives us work to do, and it's a gift. It's a blessing. It's a purpose. So, uh, in fact, Solomon uh, recommends this in Ecclesiastes. He says, take joy in the work you've been given to do. Enjoy a job well done. It's a gift from God. The Lord God commanded. Now, here's the commandment as opposed to the blessing. The man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. He's saying, partake, enjoy. It's all here for you. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's a, that's a loaded phrase. What it kind of says is, dying you shall die. Or dying you shall know you're dying. It's, it's an it's a ambiguous phrase in a way. It's like you will be doomed to death and you'll know it and you'll feel it. Dying you will then die. It doesn't, now what this is not is a threat. God's not threatening punishment. He's not saying obey me or I kill you. That's not what he's saying. It's kind of like when I tell my kids, like, don't play in the street. You may get run over by a car, and that could kill you. I'm not threatening them. I'm warning them. I'm warning them of the natural consequences of what certain actions may have. And God is saying there's a certainty that if you do this, it's going to result in death. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. This is the first time God says of his creation that something's not good. We're not made to be alone. Now, was Adam completely alone? No. He had God. He had all the animals. But God said, no, there's more that he needs. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, that's a, another tricky phrase. Helper and fit for him. So first of all, fit for him, what it means is, a helper who is his equal, who can, who can stand with him, and in some cases, and anybody who's married knows this, can stand in opposition to him and bear the same weight. In other words, God said, there's no, there's no animal here that can really be an equal companion to walk with this man, and for lack of a better term, to, to balance in opposition what I've created with this man, and it's not good for him to just sit here and spiral into himself. He needs somebody next to him, somebody who's got to be fit for him. And then that word helper. Don't look down on the word helper. It's azir. Why should we not look down on the word helper? Because if you've ever read Psalm 21, I think it's 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Same word. The Lord, creator of heaven and earth, is our helper. And he also wants to make a helper for us men. And he made woman to be the helper who is our equal, and helper is the same word that God uses to describe himself in a lot of cases. The, 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 the false narrative that somehow the Bible looks down on women is just wrong. It's not in there. Now, culturally, people have infused it in, and they've looked at this and said, okay, the woman can only be the helper. That's not what this says. That's a, that's a twisting of Scripture. And the Bible actually, more than almost any other it, well, certainly more than any other ancient text. In fact, there is no other ancient text that has a creation narrative of woman. Only the Bible has a detailed creation narrative of woman, 
How many verses did it take to make Adam? One. Eve gets like a whole chapter. It's that important. So God really wants to emphasize this. The Bible holds women in very, very high esteem. Yeah, the, the rough draft and then the final copy. So now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. So that's, that's this, this dominion that he's given to Adam. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Same phrase. He had no equal who could stand in opposition to him and to be his helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Now that, that word rib, it's, it's either rib or side. We don't really know. It doesn't matter so much. What does matter, and I, I don't remember where I heard this, but it stuck in my head, is for their brides, both Adam and Christ suffered wounds in their sides. So, and, I, and I like that, and I think there's a reason why it's so specific here. But the, um, the point is that uh, woman was formed very carefully, was formed from the side, because she's supposed to be a helper who stands equal and in opposition to the man. So the Lord God, uh, and, and the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, how many women did he make? Just one. He didn't make Adam and Eve and like Bernadise just in case, you know. It just, it's just Adam and Eve. No, I made that name up. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. Um, this is probably not even a name. Um, he just didn't, you know. He made Adam and he made Eve. One man, one woman. Male and female, he made them. And you notice the natural birth rate is a one-to-one -one ratio between men and women. It's a one-to-one -one thing. He didn't make Adam and a harem. That's not what we're called to in Scripture. That's not what's modeled for us. Now, there have been distortions of that, and there have been all sorts of times and places in history, especially when you have scenarios where large portions of the men get destroyed by war or something like that. The ratio can be off, and I'm not standing in condemnation of people who've had multiple marriages. Things happen, and, but, we're not, but we need to remember the model that God created the model he created should be honored and should be what we aspire to and should be defended. It sh we should stand up for this model. This is what God said is right for, for uh, his creation. And he ordained this in creation. This, Jesus speaks of this specific ordination multiple times. Then Adam sees the woman and he's very pleased. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's what I said when I met Rachel. Um, <laughs> just kidding, it's not. It's not. Um, therefore, and this is, this is this little aside commentary thing. He steps out of the narrative and gives a, a, uh, a conclusion statement. Therefore, a man shall leave, and you can go so far as to say should leave, his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the man rejoins the woman in marriage. She was taken out of him, and then she is rejoined to him in marriage. It's that important of bond. Amen. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Amen. My uh, older son had a lot of questions about that. Okay. So, what did God create? What did he make? He created, we know from Scripture, he created through Christ. Go ahead and uh, flip in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Right after uh, Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read this short section because we're going to reference several things in it, but this is one of Paul's statements of explaining who Jesus is and what he did. And the first thing I want you to hear from here is that God created everything through Christ. And we don't think about that a lot. We think about Jesus just showing up on the scene in, uh, in the New Testament, you know, in the Christmas story. And he does show up on the scene 
in incarnate flesh in the Christmas story. But it's not that he wasn't on the scene before then. He's all over the Old Testament going all the way back to creation. So Colossians 1.15. He, meaning Christ, is the image, we're going to be talking about that word, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. How many things? Just the things we like? Just the things we understand? Just the things that make us happy? It's not what it says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I'm going to say it again because we skip these things. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, is there a lot more going on than what we can see with our eyes? There's a whole other narrative here. All created through Christ. All things were created through him and for him. What did God make? We don't know exactly what yet. He made something, but we know that whatever it was, he made it through Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. And that we being made, anything that is, is through the great I am. Why does God say, I am that I am? Because there is no M without the I am. It doesn't work. He's the great I am. And Christ, continuing in verse 17, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Most of the things, all the things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Let's go back, just rewind. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This puts a whole other layer on creation. What's God doing with creation? Well, first of all, he made us in his image. We hear that a lot. Oh, we're in his image. And we say that because it, it brings an inherent dignity to what we are. And it should. It should. God says, I think it's in Genesis chapter 9, he says, I will require from any who murders a man, I will require his blood because man is in the image of God. And then we read in, uh, we studied in James recently, where he says, out of the same mouth should not come blessing and cursing. Why would you curse somebody who's in the image of God? There is an inherent dignity and value to being in the image of God. That doesn't tell us what it is. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, there's a few things that's very distinct to creation. We talked about one of them earlier. One of them is that he breathed into us a deep form of soul, an abiding life, an eternal form of life, and our hearts always are oriented towards some concept of eternity. We can't shake it off. So there's a dignity, there's a soul, there's a, a consciousness. It's worth wondering about that. Consciousness. What is consciousness? It's the thing in us that says, I am. Right? I am. There's a lot of philosophers who spend a lot of time on this. Uh, Hamlet being among them, to be or not to be, right? Shakespeare. And then we have uh, De Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I think that's Descartes. So what, that's consciousness. He's saying we're aware that we're aware that we're aware that we're here. That's unique to humanity. We have consciousness and a sense of eternity and an inherent dignity, and we are, we're, we're imprinted with this from God, and God, when he gave it to us, he didn't give it to us singularly, he used an us in there, let us make man in our image. So there are other things that are in the image of God, and those are the things that Paul's referencing when he talks about these thrones, and these principalities, and these dominions, and these rulers, and he says when he's going to reconcile all things to himself. So what is it about being created in the image of God. It means you have a will. You have a will. 
you have the ability to look at reality and say, I want something about this to be different and put in effort to make that change. That's unusual. Not everything can do that. Now, some, everything makes an imprint on reality by its existence, but we have a willful imprint on reality. And all this comes back to why God has named I am who I am. Because we have this very distinct I am-ness to us. That's what it is to be in the image of God. It's to have an I am-ness. Because you are, and I am. But God says, I am that I am. He's the great I am. Is it? To, to, to have this, this carrier of will and purpose of God to, is to be an expression of God. We, in our purest form, what he made is an expression, a willing expression of himself. The problem is we don't hang on to that very tightly. Now, that, but in its purest form, that's a beautiful, profound, amazing thing. But then he did this other thing that's really weird that kind of offsets this I amness. What did he make us of? Dust. What's dust? Scripturally. The space garbage. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> what, what is it in the Bible? What, so what is dust? It is useless, worthless at best, and death at worst. Is dust death? It is. I'll give you a couple of places. Job 17.6, he says, Shall I descend into Sheol? Shall I descend into the dust? Job 40.13 says, God has taken the sons of pride and he has hidden them in, under the dust for their doom. You guys want a weird one? Let's go. We got to do at least one weird one today. Let's go to Isaiah 26. Oh man, Isaiah. If you, if you want just, you know, some Sunday afternoon reading, just read 24, 25, 26, 27. It takes a few minutes, a few questions to ask yourself. Who are the inhabitants of the earth? What's he talking about? We're not going to answer that right now. But go to 26, 18. We were pregnant. We writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it, and no more, no more will cover its slain. In that day, the Lord with his hand great and strong, and great strong, and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So you can chew on that. That's not what we're talking about today. But now you've got it in your brain because it's been in my brain all week. So we are these I amers, these, these bearers of dignity, yet we are made from dust. And dust is death. We're made through Christ in the image of God but out of dust. So do you think that's the end of the story? Here's what we need to remember. Is, I mean, because you, if you just stop there, it's like some sort of weird joke. God sets up this like grating dichotomy, this thing, especially when you compare it to the other imagers that he's created, the things that he's saying, let us, these, these heavenly beings, you know, when he, when he t when, remember when we read in Ezekiel 28 about when he created Satan as a cherubim or Lucifer who fell and became the devil, what does he say about him? Does he say he's made of dust? No. He says, you're perfect in beauty and adorned with every precious stone and you were in Eden and you were walking among the stones of fire with me and you were beautiful. He doesn't say that about man. He makes them of dust and says, it's good. 
And we're going, yeah, but dust, really? You know, these cherubim get like all the precious stones and adornments and we're just dust. That's what the word Adam means, by the way. Adame means of, of the earth, of dirt. So, but it's not the end of the story because as we were made through Christ, we are also reconciled through Christ. So reconciled to what? So remember, we're asking what did God create through Christ? What is he doing? Well, he made us to be a demonstration of Christ because he made us through Christ and then he reconciles us back through Christ. We are made by God through Christ and reconciled through Christ, by Christ back to God. That's the story of Scripture. I'm not making it up. We just read Colossians 1.15, and we read through verse 20. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself. So God, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Is that just a weird fluke? Is that the, the only place it says it? Flip over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is right up there with Romans chapter 8 in terms of being one of the most amazing chapters. So we're these imagers of God, but we just have this little, this dust body to deal with. And we can all kind of feel it, right? It doesn't last real long. I mean, it's beautiful and intricate and, and incredible and speaks to the handiwork of God, but it just has this like built-in decay. And it says dust to dust, dust you are, dust you shall return, ashes to ashes, this worthlessness. But this is what we're called to, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 16. From now on, therefore, it means if you look up, it means those who live not for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, because of Christ and his resurrection, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, so even Jesus walked in dust for a while, but do we think of him that way? It says, no, we don't regard him according to the flesh. We, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Who wants to be a new creation? I want to be a new creation. Dust, that's not a good deal. Like that just, you just return to dust. It's, it says it. It's, it's written in Scripture. But through Christ, we don't return to dust. We're lifted. We're lifted up. We're lifted high in Christ. How high are we lifted? You guys want to get a little creepy again? Go to Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of something that I'm not going to share, but you can ask me afterwards about, what was that thing you were laughing about? Now I can't remember where I'm going. Uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, Daniel. There we go. Daniel chapter 7. Okay. Go to, uh, let's look at right around verse 20. Hold on, I've got to get there, get my eyes on it. Daniel 7, 27. I'm going to mark this. Somebody read that verse out loud. Daniel 7, 27. Loud as you can. I'll repeat it for the recording, but whoever wants to read it nice and loud. What? Did you guys hear what that said? How high are we lifted up? The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That doesn't sound like dust at all, does it? It sounds way better. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and his dominions, dominions, shall serve and obey him. Are we lifted high? So what did God make when he made us? What did he create? He created 
These imagers that live in this dichotomy of bearing the very image of God, but being made of dust, but he made us through Christ, and through Christ, he reconciles us back to him, and doesn't just reconcile us back to him, he gives us a kingdom, a kingdom. What else does he give us? Go to 1 Thessalonians. Actually, let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians. We, we go to 1 Thessalonians later. We probably won't have time, but we'll go to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15. Let's see here. I want to be towards the end. Here we go. Starting in verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. We're not dust anymore. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Guys, if that doesn't get you lit up, I don't know what can. Did you hear what this says? We get ascended in Christ, not just the kingdom, which is awesome, but first and foremost, we get a whole new body. We get a whole new kit to work with. And it's immortal and imperishable. And it happens like that when he comes. And he's coming soon. How many of you can feel that? You guys feel that? You've, can you feel that urgency building and building and building in your spirit? It's not just me. It's everywhere. I'm, I have strangers in coffee shops asking me about it this week. Like, literally walking over and saying, hey, um, you know, I commented that they had something on the Bible on their screen. They said, you know the Bible? I said, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm learning it. And they said, um, what do you think about the weird stuff in the Bible? I was like, how oh, funny you should ask. You know? <laughs> and, and they're like, everybody's asking me. You know, it's, it's not just me. It's not just you. This is building guys, this is coming. This is coming soon. This is why we have to figure this stuff out. Let's have the worship team come on up. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do about this? Turn in your Bibles. We're going to go two places. Spend a lot of time in these places this week, and I'm going to spend a lot more. Start in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's start in uh, verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we're imagers of God in our spirit and creation and we'll be given a body, but what are we supposed to do in the meantime? It means we throw off that old death by Christ. He died for us and we're called, brothers and sisters, to put off the old and put on the new. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3, just uh, two books over. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, city and slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So here's the hard question. What is it that keeps us 
from putting off our old selves. Why is that so hard? Don't you want to be in the image of God? Don't you want to walk in the image of God? Why do we have this old self? Brothers and sisters, it's the ego. It's the self. It's the selfness. It's the I am-ness that says, I am, he's not. Or he is, but so am I. That's not what we're called to. The I am-ness we are given, the image of God to which we are given, is to be all of our I am to say he is. It's to remove that selfness, that old self that is death, to push it aside, and with it to push aside the distortions we have, the distortions towards pride, the distortions toward cruelty, the distortions toward, toward greed, the distortions toward covetousness, the distortions toward lust, the distortions toward gluttony. We have to put these aside because these are not God and they should not be us because he is and they are not. That is what it means to be an imager of God. And what the Bible teaches, brothers and sisters, is that when we put that aside, when we put aside that self, that ego, and say, I am not, but he is, and he calls you by your name, because he says, I created you. I created you as an expression of my will. And when you walk in my will, and he calls you by name, and he calls me Joel, when you walk in my will, Joel, then I am through you. And what Paul teaches is you have everything he has then because you're a perfect expression of his will. And nobody has any hope of that except by Christ. But in Christ, it's promised. We just don't take it most of the time. We don't. We're too preoccupied with our own little I amness. What's made me angry today? What's bothered me? Who's affronted me? Who's not listening? Who's not, who's not giving me the due that I deserve? Who's, who's not doing what I want them to do? That's all self. There's one I am that matters. There's one emness to which all emness is reconcile. Christ is all in all. That's it. It all reconciles to God. And whatever there is in you that is not of God, push it away. That's what we're told. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. It's in the image of its creator, and it's bought for you by the blood of Christ. Let's worship together, and I'll come back and lead us in communion. It's from 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's present tense. You have the victory. You will have the body. And what are we to do in the meantime? Put off the old self. Put off that rotten old self. We don't keep dead bodies around to pretend that they're alive. Why should we keep a dead old self around and keep trying to bring it to life? It stinks. It gets in the way. It's problematic. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Created in the image of God through Christ. Dead, but given life and reconciled back to God through Christ to be given an immortal body and to reign with him in his kingdom. And in the meantime, our work is to believe in the one he has sent with everything we have and thus put off the old self and live in the new self. When you take communion this morning, remember what Jesus did, not just that he died to save you from his sins, that's true. But from what we learned in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, that he, di he died to save us from our sins and to redeem for himself a people of his very own who are eager to do good works. You can't do that in your old self. You can't do it. You've got to get rid of the ego. You've got to get rid of the self. You've got to push those things away by Christ and live in the perfect, as a perfect creation of the expression of the will of God. And then you are the will of God, and he calls you by name because he loves you, and you'll know the peace and the power and the joy of perfect love. Let's take communion together. Let's worship together. Let's pray together. If you're having trouble putting off the old self, if you want to put off the old self, put a stake in the ground. Come pray with me. Some of the others, uh, elders will be over there as well, whoever can join me. Come pray with us. Say, I want to put off the old self. I did a lot of work on that myself this week, praise God. I want it out because I want Christ. Right, I love you guys. Let's continue worshiping together.